0: All right, well, thank you everyone for being here. Uh, My name is Michael Farad. I'm the assistant program director at Drisha uh, and uh, very happy to welcome everyone back for what is unfortunately our last session for this series on imagining King David in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, We've been learning uh, together for quite a few weeks now uh, and we've been able to add these two sessions to be able to finished making our way through a little bit more of the material. Uh, so uh, with that, I am going to turn it over to Rabbi Silber.
1: Okay, uh, good evening, everybody. Um, this is the last session of this series. We did it, add, I added two classes. I felt we there was a lot more to say and to give a more rounded picture of the, what the Bavli thinks or imagines David uh, is. I did want to make one comment before we begin, which is that, uh, and this is I think important to remember about about the Talmud, about the Medrash. The Medrash, the Talmud is not in a vacuum. It's not functioning in a vacuum. The tradition functions within sources that already exist. They can, they try to shape it. They try to move it in certain directions. But for the most part, the tradition does not ignore what comes before. So it's very important to remember, and actually, that's true in terms of texts, it's true in terms of life. You can have two people saying exactly the same thing, but it means two very different things, because one is on a certain trajectory, the other is not. So it's very important to remember that, but it's particularly important in terms of the uh, text, the Babylonian texts that we are studying, the Bavli. In terms of David and what we've seen so far what we focused on the various stories that we saw and descriptions of David for the most part are descriptions that are about the book of Shmuel stories that appear in the book of Shmuel we began with David and Bathsheba and we move from there to other stories and the Bavui uh, typically has a very nuanced approach towards all the stories but the stories that we saw are for many of them, if not most of them, maybe all of them so far, do have critiques of David, some rather powerful critiques of David. On the other hand, remember the Babi is not making that up. The Book of Shmuel has very powerful critiques of David. The Book of Chronicles does not. The Psalms, for the most part, do not. The Psalms relate to events in David's life. But the Book of Shmuel has a different agenda to it, which is to describe kingship. One might say the uh, pitfalls of kingship, the dangers of kingship. But on the other hand, and we'll see this this evening, the book of Shmuel, in my understanding of it, also presents the other side of David, kind of ideal. In fact, I am—I've um, just written together with my compatriot Ben Zion in Israel. He writes it, and I—I I, you know, we work together. I tell him what I've been teaching; he writes it down. It's in Hebrew. We just submitted it to the publisher. It should be out in six months. He writes a very not easy and very beautiful Hebrew, poetic Hebrew. Uh, And in that book, uh, I tried to present exactly what we've had here, we'll have tonight as well, which is the Book of Shmuel is very complex and presents both sides of David. On one hand, he's the ideal king; He's capable of, of great gestures, of deep understanding, of great compassion. At the same time, what power can do to you is uh, to uh, allow you to make bad decisions, and I think even equally important, to fail to see, to fail to have the right to perception. So um, and we have this evening Tova Bulao, who actually sponsored this book. She also sponsored, by the way, the Haggadah. The Passover Haggadah was uh, written with the assistance of Tova and uh, the Bulao family, very grateful to that. And the Book of Shmuel has been a really a several times and thank you Tova and looking forward to be coming out hopefully before Pesach. Now to our subject of the evening, which is the same subject, it So I mentioned that there's an, another side to David in the book of Shmuel. And I will begin with a verse uh, that is found in the eighth chapter of 2 Samuel. You don't have it in your uh, text, but I'll tell you what it is. At the end, the eighth chapter describes briefly, David's career, the successes of David's career, uh, his various victories and war. He's a great warrior. And the end of that chapter, chapter eight, uh, it says, <inaudible> that David did mishpat and Siddaka, mishpat and sedaka, which is justice, equity and justice to all the people. That's a description of David, a kind of objective description. It's not a story. It's a statement that the Book of Samuel makes about David. Now we'll come back to that expression, that phrase, that David in describing David. See, the Book of Shmuel describes David in two ways. The book has the author, implied author, writing about David, telling us information. And then the book has stories. So the statements about David, many of them are very positive statements. And then you have the stories. And the question is, you know, how does one relate the story to the kind of objective statement about David? And the point is that we take both seriously. You take the objective statement and David did acted with justice and righteousness and equity to all his people. Then you have stories and the story suggests that it's not that simple, that in fact, Often David does not act uh, with uh, in in, in, a, in a just manner, in a fair manner, etc. So the Book of Shemuel has both of these uh, views of David, and the Bavli does as well. Till now, we focused a lot on the one might say the, the problems that David uh, engenders and encounters. And this evening, I wanted to look at primarily a different text. Like to end on positive notes in general, and uh, we'll begin this evening with the main text of the evening, which is a passage from the Gemara in um, in Psachim, uh, page one nineteen b. Psachim kufiutet amidbet. So let's get to that text. Do we have that text? One nineteen b. Gemara Talmud babwi Psachim. Okay. Everybody sees that psachim kuf-yatet o-medbet. Darash Rav Avira. Rav Avira taught. Zimnen Oma-le-mishmei de Rav Ami, vizimnen oma mishmei de Rav Asi. So sometimes he would say it in the name of Rav Ami, sometimes in the name of Rav Asi. This was a drasha he would give more than once. Ma-dichtiv vayigdal hayelet vayiglamal. What is the meaning of the verse? The child grew up and was weaned. Now that verse, those three words, has nothing to do with David. Those three words refer to the birth of, the birth of Isaac. That Isaac was born miraculously to Sarah. And it says after he was weaned, so he was fully nursed, he grew up and was fully nursed, and the text continues in Breshit, chapter 21, that Abraham, Abraham made a big party on the day that Isaac was weaned. That's what the it says in the Torah. Rabbi Avira has a drasha, So let's see what the drasha is. So Rabbi Avira said the following, he said, Atida kadosh baruch va atida kaish baruch rat so rat suda in the future god will uh make a feast god will make a feast prepare a feast for the for the for the righteous ones um atida kadosh baruch rat so suda va tsadikim beyam shey gamel chastav on the day that God Yi gomel extends God's mercies. Ligmo, chesed, is to extend mercies. When somebody, something happened to someone, they were in danger. Ha-gomel. Hagomel u-chayavim On the day that God will, Gomel will show, extend bounties or kindnesses to Isaac's descendants. And it describes a great meal that will take place in the future where God with the great uh, heroes, some of many of the great heroes of our tradition are gathered at a meal sometime in the distant future, perhaps the end of days, and they're gathered at a meal. The Torah said that Abraham made a meal, and now God has a meal for the descendants of, uh, of, of Isaac. So the first question is, before we jump into the story, what in, what is the drusha here? What does one thing have to do with the other? The Torah says that Isaac grew up, and Rav Avira begins to talk about a meal in the future that God will, God will extend, a, God will invite, the celebrants to, to join, eating and drinking. On the time that God extends is gomeo, chesed, to the children of, 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 of Isaac. So I was thinking just in terms of what the Medrash means over here, or what is bothering the Medrash? Actually, one might say, what is, what's the problem? What's one thing you have to do with the other? I have a suggestion. I haven't seen this any place. But I suggest that what's bothering the Medrash is the phrase Vayigdal vayigamal. the boy grew up and was weaned because you would expect it to be in the opposite order. He was weaned and he grew up. For example, the story of Moshe, when Moshe is taken by Pharaoh's daughter and his mother nurses him, then she brings him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And one or two verses later, Moses was Gadol, he grew up, he went out to his brethren. But here it says the opposite. The boy grew up, and was and was fully nursed, so the order is strange. So the drasha, what it means is he was nursed and he grew up. But the drasha, which sees the order in a strange way, is interpreting byi not that, not that not that he was nursed and then grew up, but he grew up and byi they're taking from the word gemul, which is to, to be to, to be given some kind of reward. When the boy grew up, he would be given some kind of reward. What reward would he be given when he grows up? So the drasha is, it's not referring to the immediate feast that Abraham makes, but God has a parallel feast, if not for Isaac, then for Isaac's children. And now we describe this feast that will take place at the end of days where the heroes of our tradition come together and they're eating and they're drinking. And after you have a meal together, where you eat or drink, it's time to say, So now it's time to uh, have the grace after meals, benching, And now we have the following. So after they finished eating, they give Abraham, someone has to lead the benching. And we know that when we have a festive occasion, and someone leads the brakatamazon. We often do this holding a, a a cup of wine at the seder. We have brakatamazon with a cup of wine. We have four cups of wine. One of them is brakatamazon. They give say they, they want to honor Abraham with uh, with uh, brakatamazon, but Abraham refuses to lead the benching. He, he says, I, "I'm not the one to lead the benching." Let's move it down a little bit. Uh, he says, because Yishmael, I, I'm, well, the wicked Ishmael came from me. Okay, maybe he's not so wicked, but in this Midrash, Abraham says, I'm not the right one to do it. So Abraham will say to Isaac, so he wants to pass on the cup. He says to Isaac, you know, I, can't, I can't read the Bikatama Amazor. What did, what did you read it, Isaac? And Isaac says, I also can't read it, he says, because Asa was my child. Asa was, was born. I'm the father of Asa. It's not appropriate for me to lead the Brikat HaMazon. So let's pass on. The, he refuses. So they pass on the cup to the next celebrant, Jacob. Okay, Jacob, Yaakov, you lead, you lead us in, in our, in our Brikat HaMazon. And Jacob says, I can't do that. I married two sisters, which later in the Torah becomes forbidden. Torah forbids the marriage of two sisters who are alive at the same time. So I, I can't do it either. I married Rachel, I married Leah. The Torah will forbid them to me in the future. It wasn't forbidden at this time, but in the future, I'm not appropriate. Okay, who's the next fellow on the list? Moshe Rabbeinu, a, a, a rather worthy person. They passed the cup to Moshe. Okay, Moshe, so you lead us in I can't do it, he says. I never entered the land of Israel. I was never, didn't have the merit to enter the land of Israel neither in my life nor in my death. So I'm not for me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the right one to read Bikata Mazor in the great feast of the future. Okay, so Moshe says to his pupil, Joshua, 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 why don't you, uh, read, why don't you read us in, in, in Bikata Mazor? And Joshua says, no, I can't do this. I didn't have any sons. It, and they cite a proof text Yoshua bin Nun and another text from Divraha Yomim, Nun bin No Yoshua Bino. It's listing the genealogy, it says Nun, it says Yoshua, and then it stops after Yoshua. So the text suggests in the eyes of the Medrash, that Yoshua has no successor. And actually, it does sound that way from the Tanakh, because after the death of Yoshua, the people say, Who will lead us? And the tribe of Judah will lead us. There is no individual to lead. So there's no question about succession. So, Yeshua says, it's not for me. So, so far, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moshe, and Yeshua have said, I'm not the appropriate one to lead the the Birkatama zone at the great feast. That God is, it's God's feast. God God is Gomel, God is, the bountiful God has called these great people to the feast. So, Yeshua says to David, why don't you take the cup and lead us, David, and David says to them, I will recite the blessing. Not only do I will recite the blessing. It's fitting that I recite the blessing. As it is written, as it is stated, I raise up the cup of salvation, and I call upon the name of God. That is the. Uh, Medrash—that's the drush, Dorash Rav that he said sometimes in the name of Ravami, Ravasi, and this appears at the end of a section, at the end of tractate Psachim. The end of tractate Psachim deals with the recitation of the uh, of the Hallel at the seder. So this is the medrash, and now the question is, what does one make of the medrash? And here we come to a very important question critical question in terms of reading texts, which is tone. What is the tone of this Medrash? There's an article written about David and the Babui, which focuses on two main stories. One is the Gemara and that we saw. And I mentioned that last time And the same writer, writes about the story over here. And he believes that the story over here is actually critical of David, that there's a critique of David over here. I shall bless, and it is fitting that I bless. <inaudible> Moshe Rabenu couldn't do it, Avram Avinu couldn't do it, Yaakov couldn't do it, and it's fitting for you. So he sees the story as a critique of David. In my view, that is utterly and completely wrong. There is no sense in my understanding, I'll share my understanding, that there's a critique over here, and for a couple of reasons. And the first one is that this particular story is part of a larger section which talks about the Hallel. And in the section of the Hallel, which is the end of the day, what is Hallel? It's the recitation of six Psalms. And the Gemara presumes fundamentally (coughs) that the author of Psalms is David. Not that he's necessarily the author of all the Psalms, but there is a presumption that so the book of Psalms in general is David related. And over the course of the last two pages in this part of the tractate, which talks about the Hallel, it speaks about David and it speaks about David and the anointing of David in the context of the book of Shmuel and the context of, uh, of Hallel. For example, uh, there is uh, just one side earlier, 119a, there's the discussion there about Psalm 118. There are four verses there followed by another couple of verses. And the Medrash presents those verses as a dialogue between David, David's brothers, Samuel, and David's father on the occasion when Shmuel comes to the house of Yeshai to anoint a, uh, a, uh, a king. God sends him in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel to anoint a new king. Saul is the king. There's a new king and it's going to be David. He comes to the house and of course when he comes there we remember the story David isn't even there. The seven sons of Yishai are there. David's out in the field. Yishai didn't even think to invite him altogether. And uh, the Medrish picks up on these verses at the end of Howel. It has a conversation between them. As far as David is concerned, the verse they cite initially is Evan Ma Su'abonim Ha'itarah Rosh Pinah, the rejected stone. The ones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the Medrash, the whole, this whole piece of the Gemara, which focuses on Hallel, it sees David as central to Hallel. It sees David as as the composer of prayers. The, the famous Gemara here, which we don't have in front of you, but says, sometimes it says, Mizmo Gadavid, Sometimes it says Gadavid Mizmar. So sometimes David was inspired on his own. And sometimes he would hear something, music or whatever, and the music would inspire him. Remember, we saw the Gemara in Brachot that he would, David would wake up when the wind would come and play the harp, and that would wake David up. Sometimes we are inspired something inside us and sometimes it's something external to ourselves. But the entire context here of these pages with David is all positive. So therefore, context is very important. And I, I personally have no sense whatsoever that there was a critique of David. And we have to remember that we're talking about the meal that takes place at the end of days. And the tradition in general, and the Bavli, in particular in Tractate Sahedrin, we didn't look at those texts, talks about the Messiah. He's called Mashiach ben David. It's the Davidic line, which is messianic. Here we have a meal at the end of days. Now the question, of course, is why is it true? If if it's not a critique of David, David will say to them, I'll recite the blessing." It is fitting for me to recite the blessing. Not just I'll do it, but it's it's right. And he picks up the cup. So why is it more for David to leave the benching than for Moshe or Avraham? Or frankly, just about any of the others. But that's a very important question. And I think the reason is actually, has something to do with how this text sees David. And it sees David as the one who, the, kind of the, the, the culmination of Jewish history. In other words, let's take Abraham and, and David. Abraham and David, Abraham is the one who sets up the covenant. Abraham is the one who symbolically possesses the land of, the land of Canaan. But he doesn't actually possess the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is, he's a a stranger in the land. God says in the covenant, the fourth generation shall return to the land. But Abraham sets it up. But when do we actually have the fulfillment? When is the full fulfillment of 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 all of the promises? And the idea here is that there will be a day, there will come a day when all these promises are fulfilled. Messianic times, and that's where David comes into play. So David is the David is the one who, who will fulfill all of the blessings. So the first one who's offered to bless is Abraham. Abraham says it's not appropriate for me to, to lead the benching. And here, I'll make one more point and I'll stop and take comments or questions before we proceed. Here, actually, the Marsha commentary on the Talmud says a very important thing, which when you hear it it sounds really correct. Why is it appropriate for David to lead Birkat Hamazon? It's not that he's greater than Moses or Abraham. But if we think about Birkata Mazon, what is Birkat about, actually? So actually, there are three blessings in Birkat The first one is about the God who actually sustains the world. The first blessing of Brikata Mazon is rare in our tradition, I have to say. It speaks not about Israel, but it speaks about the world. Azala Kulo Bituvo. It's the most universal blessing we have. God who sustains all of God's creations. Not just the humans, all of God's creations. But the second blessing of Brikata Mazon that talks about the Jewish experience and in particular the Jewish land. Jewish land. On the land and the food, not just the food. So it's, a, it's gratitude for the land that the Jewish people possessed, the covenantal land. That's the second blessing. And the third blessing third blessing is about within this covenantal land there's a sacred place. there's Jerusalem and in that blessing by the way, not only does it talk about the temple, but it talks about the kingship of kingship of, uh, of uh, David. it talks about David's kingship. So the truth of the matter is in thinking about David's role, what David does actually, In the book of Shmuel is number one David is the person who completes possessing the land because the land of Israel which is basically captured in the book of Judges the time of Devorah, the great battle of Devorah and Barak that's true but there's one piece of Israel that's not yet in, in possession of Israel which is Jerusalem. David captures Jerusalem and not only does David capture Jerusalem in chapter Five of Second Samuel, but David is also the one who purchases the place for the uh, temple. Mikdash David, his son Solomon builds the structure, but David purchases the place. So, brikata Zone is not just about food. Brikatama Zone is gratitude for land and for temple. And the person instrumental, actually, in fulfilling the completion of, of conquest of the land, securing the land, but also the great temple builder, that's David. So what David is doing in effect is building on what all the others have done. It's Abraham, it's Moshe. they give us the the path, but they're not the ones who actually fully fulfill the path. And it's David who fulfills the path. And this is actually, I mentioned the book that hopefully will come out. It's one of the things I point out in this book of Shmuel, which I'm very happy with, I will say, we'll see what happens when it comes out, but is the connection between Abraham and David within the book of Shmuel. There are many connections, which makes complete sense because Abraham is the one who sets it all up, but David is the one who actually fulfills it. To the Medrash over here, I've embellished what the Masha says, but the idea of it's fitting that I bless is actually very true. Because the very text of the blessing specifically is related to David's, to, to David's career, to David's life, both in terms of his conquest and also his setting up the temple. So I'll stop here for a moment, if people have comments or questions, and then I want to come to the, discuss in the remainder of the time the idea that it is fitting that I bless. Apart from what I said now, I think there is something else about this particular uh, story. But first of all, stop for a moment. If anybody has comments, please speak up or the chat, either way. I I had a thought. Yes. Uh, Which is, is there something characterological going on here? The procession of humility and it shouldn't be me and it shouldn't be me almost becomes like a parody. We're
0: here to to do important honoring. And David is the one who blunders many times but he's forceful and he's willing to
1: take the step and here David's it feels like someone's got to do this I'll do it I'm David I'm going to stand up and do it okay you could say that if everybody else has been you know has re- has refused to do it that David is the last man standing you could say that um you know I don't think it's only that and I don't believe, actually, and we'll get to this soon, that when David says, it is fitting that I do it, that the Talmud sees that as a kind of arrogance. You know, we've come across a different story, a different psalm in which the Talmud critiques David. He calls himself a uh, a, a, a Hasid. In what sense is David a Hasid? So the Talmud there raises some questions about that. And the fact of the matter is that in the Book of Shmuel, we have. A song of David, which talks about himself as a chassid, as a pure, pure soul. And when you read that, I think you're entitled to ask the question. He may be a good soul, but a pure soul, I wouldn't say he is in the book of Shmuel. Even a good soul was maybe questionable. But the fact of the matter is, I don't get that sense over here. And when David says the Hebrew is ani avarech na Na eluvar, I think, is not boastful. It's saying it is appropriate. And what's interesting is that that expression, nael vareh, we have in our in our services. We say in Suke de Zimra, Shabbat, we have the prayer Nishmat, it is appropriate to praise. It's appropriate to give thanks. It's appropriate to praise. And in fact, in that text, wrote even beyond David's, David's songs, David's praises. So now it's interesting, by the way, at the Seder. So with the Seder, we say Hallel. We say Hallel. And then there's a custom at the end of the Seder to sing songs, right? Chagadye, we end the Seder with Chagadiyah, right? I, I don't know what the Sevar do, Ashkenazim. But there's another song we usually sing at the end of the Seder. ki eh ki eh ki lo That's
0: ya'e. the
1: refrain. And what it's picking up on, actually, is precisely what we said earlier. ki na that during the Seder we say halel. And we say after how old, this is na'eh, it's appropriate. And after the Seder is over, we say something else. The night of the Seder is a night of Thanksgiving, it's a night of song, it's a night of praise. And then we say, even though we've praised God a lot, there's a lot more to say, there's no, there's no limit. So we're gonna to continue to sing even afterwards, Kiro na'eh, kiro ya'eh. So Kiro na'eh actually, strikes me as not an inappropriate statement in the context here, in the context of these pages at the end of tractate Psachim. Rabbi? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I do.
0: So you started by, um, you're connecting Abraham and David and um, I think you started by saying that it says about David that he did Mishpat Utsdaka Yes, and I that's the first thing that God says in recognition of Abraham. Yes, I will. I will, I will get to two that. Things, in I mean, three
1: there, as you said, there
0: are probably many others, but I, that just struck me because you started by saying that David is. Yes, I was going to pick up on that right
1: away. To, uh, yes, thank you for that. I'm, I will. I will embellish what I said in the beginning about mishpat and uh, and uh, tzedakah. <coughs> Yeah, mishpat and tzedakah. Um, Let me just respond to that and I'll take one more. Mishpat and Tzedakah, you're very correct. That appears in chapter 18 of Breshit when God says to Abraham, I can't conceal from Abraham what I plan to do to Sodom. I'm hearing terrible things. I can't conceal it from you because I know that you command your household la'asot tzedakah u'mishpat. So tzedakah mishpat appears is the first time in the Bible in conjunction with Abraham's behavior. And what's interesting is, if you think about it, where do we see Abraham doing tzedakah mishpat in the, in, the, in, the, in the Torah? And in fact, why can't God conceal from Abraham what God plans to do? Why must God tell Abraham what God plans to do? But there's a reason for it in Breshit. And the reason I think is, and in chapter 18, God is thinking about destroying Sodom. But remember that in chapter 14, just four chapters earlier, Abraham saved Sodom. He saved Sodom from the from, from those that were more powerful than Sodom. He saved the people. He saved their possessions. He brought them back. And the saving of the weak from the poor. The Torah calls that tzedakah o'mishpat. mishpat. That's what tzedakah o'mishpat mishpat is. So they may be bad people, and they'll be punished but I can't conceal from the man who saved them that I plan to destroy them. And when you look at chapter 14 of Genesis, preshit 14, you see something very interesting. In that chapter, four words appear in that chapter describing the wars. (coughs) One is mishpat, in mishpat. One is chova, one is don, which is din. And then the person that comes out to greet Abraham after the war is Malkit Tzedek. So you have tzedakah, you have mishpat, you have din, and you have for four judicial terms. And therefore, and my point here relevant to us is that what Abraham is doing is caring for those on the margins. And when he goes and fights, he takes everybody with him. And he makes sure all the people that come with him get their fair portion of the spoils. He takes nothing for himself. And then when it speaks of David of doing tzedakah or mishpat, What the Gemara that we saw last time, Gemara in Brachot, he's busy in the morning trying to figure out ways to help the woman, looking at the blood, Mephibosheth is with him. When you read it, you say to yourself, but when you read the book of Shmuel, those, those people remind us of a different David, and that's true. But the point of the Bavli is, there is another David. We know of the other David, and we will critique him right and left in the Bavli. But there's this David that we are painting the ideal David. And that's also in the book of Samuel. So that's the Tzedakah Mishpat. Tzedek and Mishpat in the Bible means protecting people who are on the margins. God's great enemy in the Bible is actually, um, is actually Amalek. The enemy of God is Amalek, why? Because Amalek always attacks the weak, scattered and dispersed the weak, that's God's enemy. So Tzedakah of Mishpat, the link to Abraham is actually very important in describing it's the David who, when he hears about the poor guy who has one little lamb and the rich guy took away his lamb and Nathan the prophet says, what do you think about that? And David got exceedingly angry. That person deserves to die. Can you imagine that? He says, no compassion, guy has one lamb. Nathan says, it's you. But the point of the story is it is David. But the other David is also the one who is, who is, who is angry about it. That's also David. And the Bavli, which likes to see all sides of everything, is presenting us not just with the David, Bathsheba, negative story, not just with Nob, not just with Naval, and all of those stories, which are all there, but here you have the tzedek um, mishpat, and the context over here, and we remind ourselves, our prayers are the prayers of David. David is the great composer of, of the prayers. So over here, David says, I will bless and it is fitting that I breath I'll come back to that as well. I'll take one more comment and we'll yeah, proceed. David, yes. can I, um, I was thinking right at the
0: beginning as we're going through this whole list, the way each one of the um, person <laughs> describes himself is very black and white. I can't do it because I'm the father of Esau. I can't do it because I did this wrong. I did that wrong. And the way you've been describing David, he is really the image of pulling together, being a full human being, not seeing himself as black and white, evil because he did one wrong thing. But he, he really presents to us the full meaning of life. And in that sense, he's a culmination not only of history, but sort of a, of human
1: development okay I will pick up that's a good point. I will pick up on that point. That's the way I wanted to end this session and I think that is true And by the way, I would add to what you're saying uh, it's a different point but you know Jacob Isaac and and um, and Abraham say I can't lead the benching because you know Ishmael Esau. Now when you look at David's children, I think it's fair to say that there is no more failed parent than, than King David talking about Amnon, who's a terrible person, Avshalom, who tries to kill his father and is killed in return, Adonia, who is parading around the city while his father is sick and dying, David's uh, son born from Bathsheba dies, and his daughter Tamar is the victim of a terrible rape by, by her own brother. So the point of it is, it's not about, I think, that I I had a child who didn't follow in my path, or maybe was a wicked child. I think the point over here has to do with succession. At the end of the day, David succeeds in establishing the kingship. And at the end of the day, and this is the main point, that he is the fulfillment of all that has come before. Now, Judy's point is an important one. And I'll get back to that, which is there's something about David's own life over here, which is, also part and parcel of the story, and I think very powerful piece of the story, and a powerful piece of David. And what the text is doing over here, actually, among other things, Rabbi Avira in this drush of his, he's picking up on a particular verse in the book of Tiriem. I lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of God. It's a verse that we say when we say Havdallah. The Ashkenazic version of Habdala, so they're pointing us. I think the drasha points us to a particular text, and it's this text that I wanted to spend the remainder of the time on. Um, Can okay. I ask
0: a question? Yes, uh, just one question before we leave this: Is it possible that when um, when uh, David says "ani ani lina el is it possible that that's the Bavli that that's the Bavli speaking, that the Bavli is saying he is most fitting to bless? Because as you suggested before, when you were narrating the the the, the, the Talmud's Agadah, um, every single one of the predecessors was uh, um, appropriate to bless, and it's almost uh, comical, or or ridiculous or false modesty to the point of okay enough already so maybe what the bodily is doing is it knows that the others were fitting too but that the bodily is leading up to this in an an, uh, argumentative style that it does and we go along with it like we do it in the refrain of a song we know what's coming which is that it's the bodily's opinion that he is not a
1: For sure. I mean, I mean, the point is the Babwi says a million different things. This particular story that I wanted to end with, of course, it's the Babwi's take. The Babwi is saying there's something about David and Birkata. It's not saying David is greater than Moses. The Babwi would never suggest anything remotely resembling that. But people have different missions. And it's saying that what David represents in terms of the end of days, Which this is the feast at the end of days, that David is the one who is the fulfillment, who has built upon those who come before, of course. But he is the fulfillment. He's the messianic dream. He represents our hopes. And I think let me just get to this particular psalm, Psalm 116. Of course, is a one of the psalms that are recited in the one of the six psalms of the uh, of the of the Hawel. One of, personally one of my favorite if not my most favorite psalm of all and it's one of those psalms that when we say the whole hollow, we say the whole psalm when we say what's called half hollow, partial hollow, like on Rosh Chodesh we, we skip the first part of it it begins with a hafti psalm 116 ki hashem e koli this is the psalm in which the verse is found kos yeshuot tesor hashem ekra. So it begins by saying that I love when God hears my voice, and my, my cries, my pleas. I am, I am encompassed by bonds of death. Torments of Sha'ol, the underworld, overtook me. I came upon trouble and sorrow. I invoked God's name. Sheh Hashem ekra, I called out God's name. Here we have the expression, sheh ekra. Hashem deliver me, God. And God did. God is gracious and beneficent, compassionate. Here we have the words that we're so familiar with from our prayers. And the next verse is striking. God protects But what is a petty? A petty is one who doesn't have wisdom, it's a simpleton. Sometimes it's a bit negative. Um, here they translate the simple, which is not the same as simpleton. Someone with no, someone with no knowledge. We say in the different psalm, Eidut pesi, makes wise the petty." So here David speaks about himself. David speaks about himself, not as a chassid, not as a tzaddik, nothing like that. Shomer petaim HaShem, David was a very clever person, very clever, very cunning. Very skillful, the great orator speaks about himself as a petty, as a simpleton, a simple person. God, God, God cares for the simple. God watches over the simple. Shuvinavshi It's one of the great psalms that we have. Here they translate: "Be at rest once again, my soul." Ki gomar God has been good to you. You have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the lands of the living. That's what David, that's what the psalmist, David is doing the talking here. That's, that's how the Medrash sees it. The text doesn't say David. But the Medrash is reading David into the story. And then it says, Hemanti daber a aniyaniti ma'od. I, that's how they translate that. I trust in God out of great suffering. I think what that means is when I was in terrible suffering, I maintained my trust. On the bichabzi, I here they translate, I spoke and said rashly. all men are false. I pre- would prefer to translate it differently. I would say, even as I said in my haste, in my flight, That all humans are deceptive, all humans lie. There are no honest people in the world. You can't trust anybody. Even as I believe that in my flight, I kept the faith. When I was running away. And actually, in reading this verse, and we come back to what Judy, I think, had hinted at before, when you think about the book of Samuel and think about David, There's something very striking about the book of Shmuel, which is that most of the book, when it talks about David, is about David running away. We encounter David when he's first anointed secretly in chapter 16, chapter 18 already he's on the run. And he's on the run all the way from chapter 18 to the very end of 1 Samuel, just 13 chapters. And then for several chapters, there's a war, he's still not the king. He's anointed king, but in chapter 4, 3 or 4, <clears throat> and then already beginning in chapter 9, you see the beginning of trouble. The Bathsheba story it begins in chapter 10 and chapter 11, and a few chapters later, he's again in exile, running from his son. So the story of David, actually, in the book of Shemuel, the great focus is about someone who lives, who, who's on the run, who's running away from his enemies, which the psalm, psalmist constantly referred to but even as I ran says David the psalmist I kept the faith and I remembered a different story from the book of Shmuel which is the, story, the following story David runs away to the Philistines in chapter 30 he's in the actually runs away earlier 27 I think it is And in chapter 30 he was invited by the Philistine leaders the king to accompany his army with David's men to fight against Saul and Israel. And David starts to go with him. And then in the middle of this, before he gets to the war, the other Philistine generals don't want David. They don't trust him. So they send David home. And David comes back to a city of Siklag where he lives. And when he comes back, all the children and all the women and their possessions have been captured by an enemy, unknown enemy. David's lost his wives. The men have lost their wives and their children. And it says, and the men were very bitter. Remember, David's men initially were basically a bunch of criminals and desperados. And they want to kill David. They're thinking of killing David. And David took strength in God. And then David turns everything around, and he manages to lead his men to great victory. That's what you have described over here, actually. Of somebody who is, has great faith, actually. That's the description over here. Even, even as I lost faith in everything else. And but I kept the faith and my faith was rewarded. I will walk among God in the land of the living That's verse number 11. And now we have the, now this is a continuation, verse number 12. Here's a question that we appears elsewhere in the book of Tihuim, and a very central question, I think, a very powerful question. And the question is, Ma called Olai. And David's question is, How can I repay God for all the good that God has done? And the word for good over here is Tagmuloi, Gemul. That's the Medrash, actually, right? Um, the Medrash is about the word Gemul. And someday God will be gomel to Isaac's, uh, to Isaac's children. So we encountered the word uh, gomel right over here. And David asked the question, how, how can I repay God for the good that God has done? We actually had it earlier in verse number seven. nafshi Return, rest my soul, return to your place of rest. Ki Hashem gomal for God has been gracious or bountiful to me. So the word gamal appears twice in the Psalm actually. So the Medrash of Avira's drasha takes us to the story and David asks the question, how can I repay God? It's a question actually that appears elsewhere in the Psalms, Psalm number 40, which you don't have. Also talks about someone who was delivered And the psalmist asked the question, what can I do? How can I repay you for what you've done to me? You don't want my sacrifices. What can I do to repay you? And then I said, I have have come with a book written about me. And by that, I believe the psalmist means in chapter 40, Psalm 40, I can tell my story to the world. I have an obligation. I can't pay God back. But I can tell other people of God's kindnesses. Pay it forward. If I was saved, someone helped me out, then I have a responsibility to tell other people to help them as well. And that's the, Hashem, is the great question. How can I repay it for all the good? And the answer is, kos yeshuot esah uvashem I will pick up the cup of salvation and I will proclaim God's name. And in the of Rabbi Avira, actually, the idea of publicly proclaiming the God who has delivered me, which is the story of David's life. It's about the one who's constantly running away. The psalmist picks this, pick this up. And David's sitting at the table with, with, with our great heroes. And David says, it's appropriate that I read, the, that I, it's fitting that I, that I do it because my obligation is, is, to, is to proclaim God's name because God saved me so many times. I'm here by the grace of God. So it's not a boast. It's quite the opposite. It's saying it's appropriate that I, it's my, it's my obligation to do it. That's And then David adds, the Psalmist adds, whom the Megras sees as David, I will fulfill my vows, and here the point is <coughs> in the presence of all of God's people. And then it goes to the end. He repeats it again in verse, verse number 18. I will fulfill my vow before all the people. And where is the, where, where are all the people? What is the space that represents the space of all people? And the answer of course is beit Hashem, in the courtyards of God, in the midst of Jerusalem, the temple. The temple is the place for all of Israel. In fact, the Solomon, is the place for the whole world. The whole world will come to the temple to serve God. What better place to proclaim God's kindnesses, says David, than in the presence in the presence of God's space? What greater place to proclaim God's kindness is than the presence of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all who came before. So that's how the Medrash is seeing it. The Medrash in Dorash is seeing this other side of David. Maybe it's the David of the Psalms. It's the David of this particular Psalm. And that's the Ligmol. And he may he made a great party, one might say, out of gratitude to God. God had made promises. Abraham had points in his life, saw no possibility that the promise would be fulfilled. And you can think about it this way with Abraham and David, formulate it this way. David is anointed in the house of his father, in the house of Jesse. And two chapters later, he's on the run, and Saul is chasing after him with thousands of soldiers on more than one occasion as the opportunity to kill him. And all the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties and at the end of the day David secures the kingship and is able with all the trouble with succession with the dip he does finally establish the kingship. and he says actually it's a miracle that I was able to do what I what I did without God's help it would have been impossible I said in my haste you can trust nobody but I didn't give up the faith. So he's proclaiming this actually at this great meal at the end of time. And that's the story of of, of Jewish history. It's not just the story of David personally, I would say. The story of Jewish history, perhaps as the Bible sees it, is a story of exile, it's a story of persecution with all kinds of twists and turns and difficulties. And we still hold the faith in general and especially at the Seder was this hollow is the hollow of the Seder. And at the Seder we have Elijah's cup. With the difficulties, we sit in exile and we believe through the behavior at the Seder that there is a hope for the future. So David represents the best hope for the future. <clears throat> I would just like to conclude and I'll take comments and questions that this idea of David actually as the, uh, the one who represents the the the, the the possibilities. The one who represents is part of our aspirations. Whether it's the temple, whether it's um, dwelling in, in 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 God's space, we actually have this in a very beautiful prayer that we say on the No uh, Noraim, the High Holiday service, in the third blessing. Third blessing of the Shemona Esrei, of course, is about God's is, is about God's sanctity, El HaKadosh. But in Rosh Hashanah, instead of saying El HaKadosh, we say Hamel HaKadosh, the Holy King. That's the third blessing. And in that blessing, there's a little poem that traditionally the Jewish people recite, which begins with the word Uvchein. The first three paragraphs, well, the first paragraph, paragraph is Uvchein ten pacht We say, God, Cause your the fear of you to fall to fall over all of humanity, so that they will. We say uh, <laughs> that the world joins together, the whole world <laughs> with a full heart. So they'll be inspired to actually accept you fully with a full heart. That's the first blessing. And then we come to the second blessing. The first blessing is about all of humanity. And then the second blessing is, We ask God, God bring dignity to your people. Those that fear you should be admired. And hopes for those who seek you out. Pitchon pelu amayachalim loch for those who, who, who search for God, who believe in God, give them the give them a confidence. Simcha liyatzecha, sason liyemecha, joy for your land. Utsmichat keren liDavid abdecha. To the a a it's one of the beautiful prayers that we have. Arichan neilu vendi shai mishlichecha b'nei Rabbi the Messianic hope which is all about David. So David appears in that very powerful prayer that we have, which talks about God's kingship, Hamelach HaKadosh. And the liturgy actually sees the kingship of David not as contradicting God's kingship. Not, Not a contradiction. It sees it as a reflection of God's kingship. The blessing ends with God, the Holy King, but the, our liturgy doesn't see that as contradicting David's kingship. That's our hope. That's our prayer. So the, basically that David who appears in the liturgy in, in, that, in that guise many times, actually. Then you know, when you talk about Jewish theology, I'm not a theologian. But I think if one place to look at if you want to know something about Jewish thought through the ages is the uh, Siddur, the prayer book, the master. <clears throat> it's a reflection actually, I think in a deep reflection of what Jews have believed in, what the aspirations, what the hopes are. So David appears prominently, not just as the one writes the songs, but David appears as representing a kind of hope for the future. And that's what this Dorash Rav is picking up on because it's not just the history of the Jewish people, it's David's own history. And I'll conclude with something that appears in these pages at the end of Psachim, the Talmud says, David who composed the Psalms, sometimes he wrote about it from his own personal experience. He's talking about himself. And sometimes he's talking about the Jewish people, about, uh, about the community. And I would say that actually, you know, I think every writer is always talking about themselves, actually, because we see the world through our own experience. But the point, I think, of the Medrash is that the life of David and the David who, who's constantly running away, but somehow is able to return and to maintain his confidence and his faith, is also the story of the Jewish people. And that's how the Medrash sees it. So, what is more appropriate than the person whose life represents? The difficulties of life, the mistakes of life, the idea of exile. There were times when David almost gives up. There were time in the Book of Shmuel when he gives up. Actually, when Absalom takes over, he says, "Go back to King Absalom, forget me." But somehow, somehow he's able to to move forward. And the end of end of the day, he's able to fulfill his, his the great promise. That is parallel as the Midrash sees it to the story of the Jewish people. So the end of days, looking back, who's the one who should bless, if not King David? And I'll stop at this point. Um, <clears throat> so uh, just to summarize what we've done, we wanted to get a picture through the Babli, actually, of how the Bavi imagines David. And I chose about, I don't know, 10 or so texts from the Babli. There were some others. But I think we touched upon some of the main stories and hopefully what got through, I hope, is that the Bavli is not just telling stories, but the Bavli is always interpreting as well. There's a deep interpretation of particular verses and of the larger narrative with the Talmud Bavli. It Begins with these various texts they have before them. And they use these texts to uh, describe a David that perhaps is very relevant to when they are speaking. David of the Babri speaks like a Talmudic scholar or Talmudic pupil, I would say, more than scholar. And that's also an important message from the Babri that I think it's important to be able to translate our tradition into contemporary terms um, and to understand how these texts continue to speak to us, which is what the Medrash is basically doing. What the Medrash is trying to do at all times is to figure out a way to enable us who live very far from what took place to see these texts as relevant in our own lives, to ask our own questions and to engage in the process of interpretation, which is what is, I think, leading us on this path. Anyway, so thank you very much for joining. If anybody has comments or questions, let's hear. And if if you have, if you think of something later, you can send me an email, I'm happy to uh, try to respond. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Silver. Yes,